This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where practicing lawyer and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Hello, liberty lovers. It's Jeff Teichert again with another edition of the Liberty and Law Podcast. And today I have a fascinating subject. I know you're probably all sick of talking about COVID-19, but we're going to talk about the implications of a global pandemic for human liberty, and it might turn out a little different than you had thought. We're going to talk about COVID-19, the Black Death, and law practice during a pandemic. And this will give you some interesting insight into how pandemics have affected human liberty in the past and how they're likely to in the future. Before I talk about the Black Death and its implications for human liberty, I kind of have to set the table by talking about the political situation of medieval England. Now, in 1066, William the Conqueror uh, invaded from Normandy and conquered England. And he had two methods of attempting to control the country once he conquered it. First, he compiled the Doomsday Book. And what that was, Doomsday means Day of Judgment, but the book essentially was an inventory of all the wealth in the realm, down to the last keg of wine or the last cowhide. He knew where everything was, at least he had access to that information. And William understood that information was power, especially the information about where the money is. Who had it? If he needed to punish someone for a crime, he knew exactly what he could take. This book was presented to him in a religious ceremony where uh, he was symbolically presented with the book and symbolically with all the wealth in the realm. The second thing William did is he feuded out vast tracts of land to people loyal to him, and it was with strings attached. They had to pay rents, and they had to do military service. So what did those people do? Well, they, in turn, feuded out large tracts within their tracts to people loyal to them with strings attached, military obligations and rents. And so there was this complex feudal ascension, but essentially it was super Amway. Everybody in the downline was supporting everybody above them. So you can kind of get an idea how that worked. It was thought at the time that if you were a lordless man, you were kind of ungoverned and you might as well be hanging out with the outlaws in the forest. And a lot of lordless men were in the forest and that was known to be full of outlaws. Well, if you think about it, feudalism was really kind of an oppressive system of government. It used the wealth that you relied on for the livelihood of your family uh, to be used to control you. If you didn't do your Lord's will, you could be run off your land and your family would be destitute. And so you didn't you didn't live a day without frequent reference to your Lord's will. 
And the Lord could also make the conditions of your being on the land more stringent. He could raise rents. He could require more military service. Basically, you were at his whim and pleasure. In 1215, a bunch of the barons got sick of King John uh, constantly raising rents and otherwise oppressing them, and they raised an army and forced the king to sign the Magna Carta. Some people have thought of the Magna Carta as a kind of primitive constitution, and it, it was in a way, but you won't see things in there about uh, freedom of speech or, you know, the three branches of government or anything that you might expect uh, looking at the United States Constitution. What you see is stuff in there about corn and rents and cattle and things like that. Well, if you understand how the feudal system worked, that's unsurprising and it's more profound than it might otherwise be because the way that you were controlled by your overlords was with the threat that if you didn't do their will, you could be run off your land and your children and wife would starve. So that kind of sets the table for what happened with the Black Death. Now, under this feudal system, uh, you could... Uh, theoretically pull up stakes and move somewhere else. And if there was another Lord that was willing to give you a place on his land, but nobody did it because there weren't places to be had. And it would be a very dangerous thing to leave the protection of your Lord and your tenure on the land and go somewhere else. When the Magna Carta was passed or signed by King John, it, it limited the ability of an overlord to raise rents for arbitrary reasons. It included uh, the right to protection in your property as well as your life and your liberty uh, unless you had been given a trial uh, with a jury of your peers, which you know, has, again, primitive seeds of the kind of due process of law protections we have in our modern constitution. A lot of it was oriented to the protection of property because property was your livelihood. It was what you counted on to keep you and your family alive. So anyway, the Black Death came along and in a relatively short time, it had killed a third of the people in England, virtually half of the working class people. Now, this was very significant. What would any economist tell you will happen if a third of the working class people die? Well, you know that uh, the demand for labor is going to be higher because the supply is lower. Labor is more scarce, it's going to be more expensive. And that's exactly what happened. It became a seller's market for labor. 
And the working class people of England weren't stupid. They negotiated better deals. They got paid more. They got more security of tenure in their land. And they were, at that time, a lot more free to pull up stakes and go work for somebody else if the landlord that they were presently under did not appreciate the new economic reality of the time. So the Black Death was, while a horrible thing, uh, for those that remained after, it was economically uh, very significant. And the poor were able to move into what we might think of at that time as a middle class. By the time the 17th century dawned uh, and King James ascended to the throne, there uh, about a third of the people in England were yeoman farmers. And a yeoman farmer was an independent freeholder that did not have uh, obligations to an overlord. So that was very significant. And it was believed that the more secure your tenure was in your land, the more free you were individually. There was this big connection with security of tenure in your property and personal freedom. And so illustrating with the Black Death, um, what the, the pandemic at that time did for the cause of human liberty uh, has caused me to think about COVID-19 and the implications it may have for the economy, for human liberty, and so on. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. First of all, I want to point out that I think COVID-19 being a milder pandemic, as pandemics go, I suppose, uh, COVID-19 is maybe a wake-up call, because I think there will come a time when we have something like the Black Death again, something that is very contagious, fast-spreading, and very lethal. And at the time, they didn't know how the Black Death was spread. They thought it was spread through the air, and actually, it was probably by rats. In any case, it's not a matter of if, but when there's another plague on the earth that is highly lethal and highly contagious. And what if we were called upon to stay in our homes for months at a time, three, four months, even a year? Would we have the food, the supplies, the water, and so on? to be able to stay in our homes that long and not interact with the outside world uh, and survive? It's a very serious question. Uh, a pandemic of that sort may not occur in our lifetime, but it may occur in the lifetimes of our children or their children. And who knows, it could occur anytime. So I think the COVID-19 pandemic has given us a wake-up call to prepare when we saw runs on the store for toilet paper and things like that. Anyway, it's, it's something to think about. Secondly, I think the fundamental fabric of our society changed in a lot of ways that has affected 
the way we administer justice and practice law as well. When I think about it, I haven't been to a court hearing at the courthouse in over a year. And I haven't missed it. Uh, I have done court hearings, by the way, uh, a number of them. And they've been using WebEx, Zoom, and other tools, depending on the tribunal that I'm in. And you dress, at least from the waist up, in a business suit, as you normally would to go to court. And you address the judge as your honor the same way. You're looking at each other on video over the internet. And you make your legal argument and present your material the same as you would uh, if it was a normal hearing in court. Now, I can see where some hearings, like an evidentiary hearing, a trial, where you've got to present witnesses and live testimony and exhibits, and you're trying to pass exhibits around to each other in the courtroom uh, so that opposing counsel has an opportunity to object to something. And that's a lot easier to do if you're all in the same room together. And and I don't deny that. I also think that in the next few years, somebody's going to develop software that allows you to quickly feed things into a scanner and get them to everybody quickly with a minimum of preparation and organization to do that. And, and I literally believe we're going to see virtual trials occurring in the future, and there will be software to support that, uh, to make it you know, less necessary to be together in the courtroom. Uh, now, there are certain advantages at this time, I think, to being able to look into your witnesses' faces and observe body language and things like that, to be able to observe jurors, even to be able to, to look at the expression on the judge's face and see what you can deduce from that. So I, I, I think there are still some advantages to being there in the courtroom for that type of a procedure. However, for most of the pretrial motion practice and other hearings that are not a trial, I don't think there is any appreciable advantage to being there in the courtroom. And here is the disadvantage. If I'm going to court and... I've got to leave my home in Layton or my office in Farmington and drive to Salt Lake City. You know, you're talking about 40 minutes or something. Then I've got to find a place to park. Then I've got to walk from wherever I parked into the courthouse, go through security, uh, and generally in line behind a, a bunch of other people. I've got to find out which courtroom I'm in and make it there uh, before my case is called. Typically, I have to wait behind a number of other matters that are on the calendar before me. And that can take anywhere from, you know, 20 or 30 minutes to hours. And then when I've done my hearing, I've got to do that all in reverse again. Go back out. I don't have to check out through security, but I have to go back out, get in my car, pay for parking, which five, ten bucks or something. And then I have to, to drive all the way back. And by the time I've done all that, you know, it can take half the day. And does my client really want to pay $1,200 for me to conduct a 20 to 30 minute hearing or an hour hearing? 
Well, no, they're going to be upset about that. And, you know, I'm going to be upset if I have to drive and sit through all of that uh, preliminary stuff before my case is called. Um, you know, it's wasting my time if I'm sitting there doing something I don't want to do and I'm getting not getting paid for it. And so it, cre it creates a tremendous efficiency if we're holding that hearing by WebEx. With WebEx, I'm sitting at my desk, I'm working, perhaps I'm preparing for the hearing, perhaps something else. But at the appointed time, I log in on WebEx. Uh, when the judge and all the parties are there, um, or, and, and of course the counsel, uh, the judge calls the case, you do your hearing, uh, the, the judge may say this is submitted for decision or may rule from the bench, but either way, when the judge concludes the hearing, you simply log out and go back to work. No commuting, no extra driving, no extra hassle, no risk of car accidents. It is a much more efficient way of conducting court. And I frankly hope we never go back to live court hearings for motion practice and pretrial matters. I hope we continue to do them remotely. So that's my opinion on that. And I, I think the legal profession has been reluctant to change with advancing technology and with the times in, in many ways. And one, one of those ways is going to a traditional court hearing inside the courtroom. Uh, that's the way we've always done it. And we didn't ever think we had a reason to question it or think of something different. And I, I think it's, uh, I think we've come uh, a long way in, in being innovative because we were forced to by the pandemic. I think the legal profession is that way in a lot of ways. It's small c conservative. It's not politically conservative. It's the legal profession tends to be politically liberal. But I, I have to say that, you know, we've been forced to change. Law firms typically, 20 years ago or something, I tried to convince law firms that they should hire me to write briefs for them. As, as any lawyer that knows me will tell you, I'm one of the best brief writers in the profession. That is my particular gift. There's other things that lawyers do that I'm not as good at, but that is a place where I really shine. And there's a downtown law firm in Seattle that frequently hires me when they have an important brief, and they will tell you um, I can do it faster and better than they can, and uh, they trust me. Well, anyway, I tried to get firms to hire me for that kind of thing early in my career, and I would say, you know, I put the case to them. Well, look, you can you you hire me and you pay my fee when I work for you, but when I don't, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have any overhead. You don't have to hire me an assistant. You don't have to pay for my health insurance. You don't have to rent office space for me, or otherwise provide me a desk. You know, there's a lot of efficiencies that are created by not having that extra overhead and yet having access to someone who can help you out when you're either too busy or have something really important and you need an expert writer. So it makes all the sense in the world, both from a cost standpoint and from a product quality standpoint. But I think there has often been 
a resistance to that kind of thing. And you'll, you'll just hear law firms without explaining the real reason. They'll just say, oh, it's just not something we've ever been willing to do. It's not something we've ever tried. And it's kind of like, well, we've always done it this way. We're going to continue to do it this way because it's always worked. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, I think one thing law firms have figured out during the pandemic is that the attorneys that work for them seem to be able to work pretty well independently from home. And I think often there was a concern in law firm cultures that if you weren't standing over someone looking over their shoulder to make sure they were working, they would slack off. Well, with billable hour requirements and work product and output uh, expectations, I don't think that's really been an issue. I think now people are judged more for the actual work product they put out and, uh, and the billable hours they put in, um, you know, for how, how their job performance is. I think before the pandemic, when people were going into an office all the time and you had firms, you know, where people met in the morning and left at night, it was kind of a status symbol to have your car seen in the parking lot of the law firm long after dark, more than long before sunrise. So somebody might want to come in at five o'clock in the morning and then leave at four in the afternoon after an 11 hour day. Uh, and that would be seen as, yeah, this person's slacking off. They're leaving at four, you know, there was this effort to put in FaceTime to look good. And if everybody's working from home, of course, you don't have that. People are accomplishing their work when it's convenient for them to work and still able to have a life. And they've been able to, you know, avoid the extra hour or two or three that they spent every day commuting. And, you know, on days when they go to court, they're not having to dress up to come into the office and all of that. It's saving time and, and energy. And I think it hasn't been the uh, meltdown that a lot of law firms believed it would be. On another note, there are other efficiencies that technology is, has made possible that make a traditional law firm setting less and less relevant and important. It used to be that one of the main reasons you needed to belong to a law firm is you had to pool resources for expensive costs. Uh, you needed a law library and, you know, those books were expensive and you had to constantly buy the updates uh, every year because there were new cases being decided and new laws being passed and you had to stay current. And, you know, getting set up with a law library could run you several hundred thousand to a million dollars. Today, you can get a library online for free from the Bar Association. It comes with your dues that is better than any, than any law firm library would have been, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And a person sitting at home uh, in his laptop, looking out the window at his garden, can access a, a broader array of materials and do more accurate research at his computer than... Uh, an attorney, like I said, 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, going and pulling books from the stacks 
or going to the county law library and Xeroxing. Uh, so a lot has happened that has made it more possible to practice independently. Now, I think for the foreseeable future, there are always going to be reasons for attorneys to collaborate. There may be cases that are too big uh, for one attorney, too, too uh, much factual material, too many areas uh, that, that one person can't handle it and you need a team. I think attorneys will always cooperate with other attorneys for things like that and, and law firms will exist for that. But I think more and more you're going to see a drift toward each lawyer being an independent profit center and they cooperate with other lawyers for particular purposes like I've just mentioned. And if we go back to that whole um, discussion of uh, medieval Europe, medieval England, well, people felt that they were more free when they had more security of tenure, when they could be an independent profit center without reference to the will of an overlord. In like manner, I think you're more free today and you have more liberty as the owner of your own business with your own profit center than you are working for someone else. I think it's always been true and it still is true. And to the extent that the law, the law profession can move in that direction and individual attorneys can be individual profit centers who cooperate here and there with other attorneys uh, to collaborate on ideas as well as to uh, you know, collaborate on very large cases that require multiple attorneys, but otherwise remain somewhat financially independent of each other and, uh, and so forth, and, and managers basically of their own life and work schedule, I think they're going to be more free. I suspect that this is true in the larger economy as well. Um, you know, you had originally uh, IBM create personal computers and they they created the computer and wrote the software and did everything to make that one package. But then along came a scrappy little startup called Microsoft and they said, we're going to write your operating system because we can do it better, faster and cheaper than you because it's all we do. And then Intel came along and said the same thing about the microchips that they were going to make for them. And then that kind of specialization and niche marketing filters all the way down to the independent, uh, the independent technical writer sitting, you know, in his basement in his pajamas writing uh, manuals for Trend Micro or somebody at three o'clock in the morning and making a hundred thousand dollars a year doing it. And he works very independently uh, on a contract basis for a company. That's the new model of the economy. And I think, frankly, it is positive for the cause of human liberty. It allows many individuals to be an independent profit center, a freeholder, if you will. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic has forced us to learn to use technology in ways that replaces uh, a lot of the 
the practices that we used to have that were less efficient and required us to belong to bigger and um, more overbearing organizations to accomplish the same tasks. I am encouraged by uh, the prospect of the legal profession changing for the better, being less oppressive to new associates and, uh, and to solo practitioners, giving everyone a chance to bid for the really good work and the great clients. And technology is, has become a great equalizer in that regard, especially since the COVID pandemic hit. I'm not saying the COVID pandemic has been a good thing. Clearly, we don't like to see people die or get sick. But it has had some unexpected consequences, and I think some of the consequences for human liberty have been good. There have been other ones with lockdowns and things where you question whether uh, human liberty is being respected, and that might be a subject for another podcast. But as far as the overall social technological and human impact over the long term, uh, I think we see trends uh, that indicate that human liberty is going to benefit from the technological revolution and some of the things we have learned during the COVID-19 pandemic. So thank you for coming along on this discussion. I hope you found it interesting and it gave you some things to think about. I appreciate you being here, and I want to tell you that if you love liberty, you're in the right place. So we'll talk to you next time.